And that fourth grade class, there's students who are performing at a third grade level, second grade level, might even be a first grade level. That doesn't mean they need a special class placement. That means that I, as teacher, got to find it with a plan of how I can meet the needs of all of these students. I am Ron Whitmore with Lurie's Bell, and we are Evanston Rules. Mabel Williams was truly ahead of her time. Listen as she talks about her time in Evanston School District 65 as the special education coordinator and how she wanted to transform the perception of what special education was. She unpacks her goal to make sure that she taught kids to age out of special ed as opposed to it being a life sentence. She was truly ahead of her time. Thank you for being a Renaissance woman, Mabel. Listen to understand. I am Ron Whitmore. And I'm Larice Bell. And tonight, we had the pleasure of having a conversation with a star, a consistent, consummate educator that believed that all children have the right and capability of learning. An educator that thought outside the box and was unapologetic about thinking outside the box. Mabel Williams. Yes. All humility and honor. Welcome to Evanston Rules. Thank you. Thank you. You said you knew you wanted to be a teacher from fourth grade. What inspired that? And what kept you on track to do what you always knew you wanted to do? As much as it was an innate feeling that I have, I do have an older sister who actually did become a teacher. So that was kind of the pattern that was set for me. But You know, it's not what someone has suggested that one might do later in life. Mm. What is it that's internally saying to you, this is what I want to do. I have another sister who was in nursing school at Mount Sinai in Chicago, and I would go to visit. And I would see these nurses years ago. They'd wear these little cute uniforms, little white aprons and blue dresses and all. And I thought, oh, I want to be a nurse. But if I didn't see a nurse, I didn't want to be a nurse. I wanted to be a teacher. So I have done for myself what I have encouraged young people to do. It's not so much what somebody is suggesting or what somebody is modeling, which is good. We need models. But for me, it's the innate. What is it that's in me that's telling me this is what I would want to do later in life? There's so many stories, Dr. Williams, of of Black people being taken off track by people that don't think they're capable of accomplishing the things they innately want to accomplish. Right. Did you have any of those experiences, somebody telling you you couldn't be what you wanted to be or do what you wanted to do? I did not have that experience. Uh, I was always encouraged. But that takes me back. I keep going back to my experience in working with young people. I would always ask, what is it you think you would like to do late in life? So I'm, I'm building these expectations. So whenever I needed them to be on task, I would say, hey, look, you said you want to become a doctor, but you can't become a doctor wasting your time. And if you tell me what it is you want to become, then I can help you to stay on track. There it is. That was a very interesting experience. Um, you know, I was a learning disabilities teacher at Dawes School prior to coming to administration. And our supervisor said that she was going to retire. And if any of the LD teachers wanted to apply for her job, she was letting us know before they post the job. I applied and another, one of my colleagues applied. And we had our interview on the same afternoon. And when when my colleague came out, she said, this person said to me, 
Mabel, may the best person win. I said, oh my goodness, yes, you're right, thank you. <laughs> so I went in for my interview. She asked questions, but I was the one who had a whole string of certifications for special education. My colleague only had certification for the one area. So when my colleague found out that I had the job, she called me and said, oh, I really didn't mean that. <laughs> I said, that, but that's okay. That's okay. The best person won. That, well, yeah. Then later, the supervisor for all the special education classes decided to retire abruptly. And I wanted that job. That was really the job I wanted because then I would be involved with all of the classes in the District 65, phasing learners out of special education and getting them back into their rightful places in regular ed, that if I could be over all of the classes, I would have more of an opportunity to help more students. So I wanted that job. And something told me, I'm a, I listened to my inner voice. My inner voice said, if you want that job, then let Ron Mackard, who was director personnel, let him know that. Don't wait until he asks you, do you want it? I called him. And he said, absolutely. We wanted to offer you that job in the first place, but we didn't know how to ask you to leave the job we'd just given you to come. We didn't know how you would feel about that. I said, feel great. He said, great, let me call right now. So that's how I got to be the supervisor for all of the special education classes. And I wanted to be in a position where I could help more of our children. I just got to tell you, more African-American children because... Somebody needed to be at the table. I was the first African-American administrator in special education. They didn't have anybody else. I was the first one. But you went in to the office of the first Black superintendent of District 65. Yes. And here is this man, Joe Hill, that is from Evanston, that gets the job. And he is really unapologetic about promoting people that look like him who were Black. Oh. Absolutely. So you came along with Mr. Dawkins and Mr. Johnson and Mr. Mm -hmm. Cherry and Mrs. Tate and all those very impactful individuals under this black superintendent in mm -hmm. our liberal Evanston. Mm -hmm. What was that like in the late 60s, early 70s? And how did you all work together to transform how the district looks at black children at that time? Well, see, I'm trying to separate special education from regular education because I had so much to do in special education, but I had to collaborate with all of them because I had students in most of the classes in most of the uh, buildings. And uh, of course, I got excellent support from each of them. We had one of our special education teachers who was placed at a school. She was having a very, very difficult time. I don't know for what reason, could have been race could have been perception that the administrator had, I don't know. But we had to move her to a school where there was an African-American principal. She did outstanding things. And she's one of the community leaders now for the NAACP. Sometimes people look at us on the surface and say, you can't do, they can't do, they haven't done, and they don't expect us to do it. Right. And, and then she's a first, you got to be a first. So you got to really prove yourself as you go. You got to do 110, you know that. Yeah, that, that correlation to what expectations you have for students and how uh -huh. cutting edge it was moving students out of special ed. Yes. Back into regular ed. Yes. But that's a direct correlation to 
making sure that black people had voices oh, in District shit. 65 in order to move the needle, not just for black children, but for all children. Exactly. The reality, how we look at it is, given that opportunity, we do great things. That's why I wanted that spot. Every, every African-American teacher that came into special education <laughs> after came I was there, I brought them in. Came I went through you. Recruit. I said to the personnel director, once I got to go to Howard University, because that's where we have African-Americans graduating. And I set up an appointment, had an appointment when I went to my nephew's graduation there. I was in interviewing people for jobs in special ed. So going back, you said that when you started out, you were the only black teacher. So you were a young, new teacher. Yes. There was no one else who looked like you. No. What was it like for you? Well, it really didn't bother me because when I went to Illinois State for my undergrad work, because most of white folks there anyway, so <laughs> I had no problem. I went to Catholic school and most of the nuns were white. And it made it easy for me because I was able to communicate and collaborate with my colleagues whom I needed the support from as I phased the students back into regular classes. The principal was very supportive and I was able to get most of the students, as a matter of fact, all of the students back into regular classes and they went on to high school and have graduated. I, I imagine that for many kids or a number of the kids you were working with, it was the first time they'd had a black instructor and there were those kids for whom it was very important to see themselves in you. Oh, absolutely. I've seen that so many times. I've been into classrooms and I've seen African-American children look up and see me walk in and I can just see, I can just see them relaxing and smiling as if to say, ha ha, I see someone who looks like me. I believe I can relate to, which is so important. They always talk about after you guys did the five plus five and left, right? Uh, yes. I'm going in the way back machine. I wasn't happy about that. I got to interrupt you. That was a transition for me that I wasn't happy about it, but it was the thing for us to have done at that time. Oh, was, absolutely. What five plus five was, was it was an early retirement package that they offered educators. Shortly after that exit of all the wonderful black administrators. Yes. District 65 began to talk about, we can't find quality black educators mm -hmm. and we can't find quality black administrators. And, mm -hmm. and to hear you say, it's about taking the initiative. It was okay oh, sure. going to Howard. It was okay going to Chicago State or yes. wherever you knew there were a plethora of, of Black people that wanted to come North and teach. But, but the equity, I'm, I'm speaking to the equity that I lived watching my elders perform their tasks. Mm -hmm. It was this influx of very brilliant, cutting edge Black administrators that were also educators in Evanston that got the opportunity to come up in the ranks and then pay it forward from an administrative point of view, right? And there was such a fabulous network that there was no place for the possible saboteurs to hide. Oh no. Right, because if Principal A tried to call behind Mabel Williams' decision to central office, central office would say, we're gonna go with Mabel Williams' decision She's the supervisor and we support her 100%. It's that collaboration that's going to have to happen. I'm imagining that some learners are in classrooms where the teaching is to the curriculum, not realizing that if there's a fourth grade class, as an example, and that fourth grade class, there's students who are performing at a third grade level, second grade level, might even be a first grade level. That doesn't mean they need a special class placement. 
That means that I, as teacher, got to find it with a plan of how I can meet the needs of all of these students in this classroom. I'm not sure that all teachers are equipped. Mm. Or want to, or want to. I want to, yeah. That's the problem. Yet classroom teachers give training and workshops where teachers are able to meet the needs of students, instructional needs, where they are. And once they experience success, I don't have to tell you that, success breeds success. They want to keep learning and keep doing. People got to look at students in terms of where they are. We got to know the students whose needs are being met and see whether they're being instructed at the frustration level all the time, instructional level. It's that, it's that frustration. They're not going to learn. And they're going to perform as if they are the special needs when they're not. Because they're frustrated. They can't do the work. That's why we need instructional leaders, not principals who are managing schools. Anybody can manage a school. Go in and the teachers keep the students quiet. The principal's saying to read the newspapers and whatever they're going to do. But if the instructional managers, when they go into those classrooms, they will learn. They will see who's doing what and who needs to do what. And we got to have more of that. I don't know if it's not happening. Apparently not. Because I keep hearing that the, the gap is widening and I don't like that. The gap doesn't have to be why. It takes more people with a common focus, creating a culture that will meet the needs of our students. These things that I just talked about, they're, they're serious. If a child gets in, a student gets into a person's room and they don't encourage them, then they, they have low self-esteem. They're not going to speak up. Always the first day of school, I never went to school with a seating chart. Always allow students to sit wherever they wanted to because I'm learning who they are and what their needs are. Now, the very kids who felt successful, aggressive, they sat up front. That's where the teacher stands in front of the room. Those who weren't quite sure of themselves sat way back in the back of the room. And those who felt that they kind of understood what it meant, whatever grade they were in, they sat on either the right or left periphery. However, I always said to my students, when you come back tomorrow, I want, to, want you to sit exactly in, those, in the same seat you sat in today. I wanted them to do that so I could remember their names. That was very important to me the first two days. So the next day, sure enough, I would be standing at the door. And as a student would come in, I said, good morning, Susan. And I would hear them go into the room and say, did you hear her? She called my name. She called me. She knows my name. That meant so much to them knowing their names. That was very, very powerful. So Ryan Whitmore ends up sitting in the back of Mabel Williams' class trying to get away, and Mabel's sitting there and doesn't say it, but no. she says, I got you. <laughs> you know what I'm coming to see. I think that's beautiful, and it's a testament to what we should continue to do in terms of caring about kids that may be struggling. Their academic level, their ability level, and their interest level is what's going to keep kids motivated and trying mm -hmm. hard. And feedback. They need yeah. that feedback to let them know that they're on track, they're not on track. I'm going to help you if you're not on track. You're going to be successful. We're not going to have any failures here, are we? That's right. I'm building that relationship. I'm leveling the playing field with those who sat up front, who felt so confident with those who sat way in the back. And I'm letting them know, I see you, I hear you, and I'm going to connect with you too. So I will baseline. I baseline all of my students at the beginning of the year because, you know, six weeks in, we got to write a report card. Right. When parents come in for that report card, six weeks hence, 
I'm going to say John has made progress. He hasn't made progress. It has based on what? What you observed. Because I have, to, I have had parents to challenge me. The first year I taught, the first grading period, I arrived at school the next day and one of my students and the parents were sitting on the stoop waiting for me. And he said, my son has always gotten A's and B's and he's never gotten a C. And I took him to my room and showed him work samples. And you know what he did? He got up and shook my hand. And what did the child do by the end of the year? He worked. He worked. You can't start out giving him A's and B's the first six weeks. If so, there's no place to go. I said, oh, I know it all. No, I got to take you on this journey with me. In order to take you on this journey, I've got a baseline to find out exactly where, where the gaps are in your learning because there are probably some gaps and that's where I can move them on. Oh yeah, at the end of the year, yeah, he was assertive, aggressive and studious and he did do well. Awesome. Imagine he's a doctor, a lawyer somewhere today. <laughs> Hopefully an honest one. Expectations can be the difficult piece. You have a parent who comes in, you have children who come in and as an educator, you're not just teaching children, you're teaching a community. Exactly, that's exactly right especially the parents. It's a collaborative uh, approach. You know, you hear the, the term, it takes a village. How, what a wonderful teacher I may have been without the support of the parents, my colleagues, the school environment, the principals provide the resources so I can have what I need to work with. It takes everybody, but we must keep clear expectations for all of them in order for them to succeed and when they students know that we have certain expectations no you just simply say i know you can do it i just told you something i know you can do it i expect you to do it i just wish the people listening could see the passion in your face and how your face lights up when you talk about student success oh there's a joy i wanted to become a teacher not because somebody said it might be a good job or you'll be good with kids i was very much influenced by mary bethune founder uh, Bethune-Cookman College mm-hmm. in Florida. When I read her biography and what she had done, and you know, she started a college. She yeah. had, so I was influenced by her. But my role model was really my oldest sister who became a teacher. She was just as adamant about teaching and seeing students' success as I was. As a matter of fact, she never wanted to teach above third grade because she felt that she had to lay the foundation. She said, without a good foundation, the kids would not succeed in their upper grades. So she was my role model. Sounds like you were in it almost to get yourself out of a job. That was said to me. That was said to me many times when I was phasing these kids out and they said, you're gonna work yourself out of a job. And guess what? I said, that would be just fine. My husband will take care of me. I can't say it enough, but thank you for being a role model. I'm so happy our paths crossed. Oh my God. So Ron was talking about how your face lit up. I'm sitting here watching how his face is just so happy having this conversation. When did you go back to school to get your master's? That's an excellent question. I did not. I went to school full time to earn a BS degree from Illinois State in Bloomington, Illinois. And I was so happy to become a teacher until I didn't have time to take off and go back to school. I earned a master's degree from Northwestern 
in learning disabilities and a doctorate from Roosevelt and principal leadership. And all of that was done part-time. I worked full-time and I earned a master's degree and a doctorate part-time. Was this when you had children? Yes. Tell us what that was like. Oh, it was wonderful. You know why? My children went to camp every summer. <laughs> they went to Pioneer Trails every summer. So Northwestern is right up here. So that's when I earned my master's degree. I would go to school evening classes if I had to. Sometimes I had classes on weekends. So I earned a master's and a doctorate going to school part-time and working full-time. And not only doing the class, by that time, I was an administrator myself, a supervisor for special ed classes. What are you most proud of, Dr. Williams? I'm most proud of being um, the mother of two wonderful sons. And I'm most proud of some of those things that I did when I was on my professional journey in Evanston School District 65. I've been in Evanston District 65 for 38 years. I went to the Board of Education as supervisor for all the special education classes. And there were about 15 classes in the district during that time. There was not a really structure for the curriculum. Special education doesn't go first grade, second grade, third grade. They go primary, intermediate, junior high. So I did a curriculum design. I meant that if one student would leave one school in Evanston, go to another school, that primary teacher would have that same curriculum. Intermediate would have the same middle school. So that gave more structure to the uh, special education program. And I was really proud of that. And also as a special education supervisor, I had to sit in on all of the IEP conferences where we made plans and set goals about what the, the learners were doing and what recommendations would be made for the future. I started to do parent meetings to actually give them questions to ask teachers, to ask in these conferences, to be part of, to give input. So we didn't talk at, but we included them into what we were doing. Okay, I just wanted to tell you from my heart, Mrs. Williams, that you were a major inspiration for me. And you always knew what I was doing and you always encouraged me to keep going. So I wanna thank you publicly for that. One of the things I wanna to speak to is you're thinking about diverse learners, right? And how cutting edge your thinking was. Your job was to move kids back into regular education. And you mentioned you had colleagues tell you you would teach yourself out of a job, but that's mm -hmm. exactly what we should do if we care about kids learning. Explain just that dialogue and, and how you didn't think about your job, but you thought about students' education. Well, that's a good question. I got to tell you, most of the students in that class, all those in Walker School was in Skokie, most of the kids were bust there and they were African-American young men. So their future was in my hands. And I knew all learners belong in regular class placements, all of them. But for some reason, some students might need some support. They might need to come to a special teacher. Some might need special education classes all the way through. But those who do not, they don't need to be there. They don't need to wear that label. They don't need it. So I developed a positive relationship with my colleagues and I shared teaching strategies with them. I did workshops with them. And, and it was a principal who recognized 
what I was doing even before they did. I would see teacher X and I would say, oh, what time do you teach reading? And she said, oh, I do it at what time? And I said, you know, I, th I, I think I have somebody in your class. They're reading at a third grade level. Can you take that child? They take that child, that, that learner. And then once they would get in there and do well in a reading class, and then when I said, well, can I send them in for math? They said, oh, yeah. I said, how is he doing? Oh, they're doing fine. They're doing as well as the students in, in the regular class. So once a learner can survive in a regular class for courses for more than two hours, they don't need special ed. Right, right. So I was forever calling meetings and say, I have another one. I have another one. And that's when I got the message. You're going to work yourself out of a job. I said, but that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to give my students all that I can give them, give them the best. And that's what I did. When you talk about transitioning kids out of special ed into regular ed, mm -hmm. you also talked about them graduating high school and going to college. Yes. And that, that, unfortunately, when you talk about what's happening in education today with the gap in education, it's still black and brown boy. And you early on found the magic potion. They have to get feedback from you. Not that I love you and you're doing fine. They don't, they can't even qualify that. And I can't either. We show them by giving them feedback on their work, giving them praise by their work, encouraging them, helping them to build self-esteem and telling them, I'm here for you. I'm here to help you. And they understand that. We don't realize they really are very sensitive and they understand everything that we're saying. I'm reminded of a student who was a kindergartner who happened to have been African-American at Dawes School. She was the only African-American girl in that class. And uh, the teacher, of course, was not an African-American. But she was telling a story that the children were out on the playground playing and a little white girl had fallen. And the teacher had picked this little girl up and knocked the sand off and talked with her. And are you, are you okay? And all of that. I don't know if the little African-American girl did this deliberately or not, but she failed. Mm. And the teacher didn't do that. But this little kindergartner asked the teacher, why didn't you do that to me? I didn't see this. The teacher told the story herself. And all I can think of, and when I think about that, that little girl must be a lawyer someplace today. She was a kindergartner, and she asked, why didn't you do this to me? She was doing a thorough test in equity. Yes, yes, kindergartner. And had the courage to say, or to challenge the teacher and say, you're not being equitable. Well, and Ron, you just said some courage. We don't, young people just don't have the courage because they don't know, they haven't been socialized that way yeah. to speak up. This little girl out to clear blue. They need to build that self-esteem so they can say it. Just ask the question. But, but I'm going to go one further. I'm going to say that people need to go through the Dr. Mabel Williams School of Believing About Children. Oh. Because as you mentioned so eloquently earlier, we have to have the courage to treat mm -hmm. children like we would want our children treated. Oh, yes. Yes, it goes both ways. We want our learners to respect us, but we need to respect them and their ideas and what they're bringing in. That is critical. So what would you tell teachers, educators, if you could leave <laughs> educators in a better place, what would you tell them? I'll tell them 
to get to know every student, build that relationship, make students feel important no matter where they are and how they're performing, integrate, do unified studies so everybody can contribute and everybody will know because we all have strengths and weaknesses. By having them to work collaboratively, I can do some artwork, you can write the research, and everybody can feel as if they made a contribution and everybody's been included and they learn from each other in that process. I'm going to keep saying it. You knew how not only to make children feel like you cared, but the adults that were lucky enough to be around you, you really made us feel like you cared too. After you retired, you're a busy gal. Tell us a bit about what you do and how you continued learning. After being in District 65 for 38 years, I did not retire. I went to the Teachers Academy for Mathematics and Science. I was there for seven years. After that, I did consultant work with Hope Foundation. In conjunction with that, I'm able to incorporate my exercise classes, of course. I do cardio strength building and currently am a Spanish student. I've been taking Spanish for the last three years. Como estas? I feel that if I got to have the physical strength, I need the mental exercise as well. So the mind and the body works together. I don't plan to do anything with it, except I, I enjoy the challenge. Well, Dr. Mabel Williams, we admire you. Thank you for your contributions to Everson, and thank you for all you do. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very proud of you, Ron. I know your path as well, your professional journey. I had good teachers. Yep. We don't have enough African-American men, especially in the classroom. So you have been there and we're so proud. Wow. I'm, I'm, I'm getting choked up. Yeah, um, it's true. I admire you so much. And we used to talk about how wonderful that we had you in this district. So it's not all Abel Williams, a lot of good people. You know, the people would ask me, what is a good school? Which is a good school in Evanston? Where shall I send my child? You know what my response would be? There's no such thing as good and bad schools. There are strong and weak teachers. There are caring and non-caring teachers. If your child happens to get a strong, caring teacher, that's a good teacher. But it doesn't mean that's a bad school or good school. It's that individual teacher. But it's a wonderful profession. As my sister, the one I told you my model, yeah. we won't say this to anybody, but we would be so happy when Monday morning would come and so sad when Friday would come because we wanted to be with our learners. That's the most rewarding job one could ever have. It's wonderful to watch that progress and watch that shot and they unfold. That's beautiful. Oh, yes. We love you and thank you very much. Mabel Williams was truly ahead of her time. Thank you for being a Renaissance woman, Mabel. We're also grateful for the outpouring of support as we continue to have conversations that are honest about Evanston and the Evanston community. For Ron Whitmore, I'm Larice Bell. Evanston Rules can be found at evanstonrules.com, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and you can also find our past episodes on the Evanston Roundtable at evanstonroundtable.com. Thank you for listening. Listen to understand. <laughs>